Welcome to the Oxford University Psychiatry Podcast Series. Today I have uh, Andrea Cipriani, who's Associate Professor here at Oxford University and Editor of the Journal for Evidence-Based Mental Health. Good afternoon, Andrea. Good afternoon, Daniel. Thank you for coming today. Um, Your research is about uh, meta-analysis, network meta-analysis, about synthesising data to provide helpful information to to doctors. So um, maybe we could begin by uh, just talking about how you got here in the first place. How did you start thinking about these these things? Evidence synthesis is mainly what I'm dealing with in terms of my research. And I started many years ago, about uh, 11 years ago, when I was here in Oxford as resident in psychiatry. I trained in Italy, in Verona, but I spent uh, nine months here in Oxford and uh, I have to say that it was John Geddes who inspired me and uh, taught me all about evidence synthesis. So that was where it started. Okay, and you began by looking at um, meta-analysis of, of medications, is, is that right? Yes, I, I like the idea of doing something systematic and so collect, uh, to have a comprehensive use of all available evidence, but at the same time trying to synthesize all this evidence, these studies, into one pooled estimate because this is something that can really inform clinicians because you have to have one figure to work with and not a lot of different small studies. So that's uh, the thing I like in evidence synthesis, so to be methodologically rigorous, but at the same time having a bottom line message to give to clinicians. Can you give us an example of that? Well, I have in mind two examples. One was the, the piece of research I did in 2000 three and four, and it was published in 2005 with John Geddes and Keith Houghton about suicide and lithium. So what we had was a, a, quite a f- numerous, uh, many trials about lithium in affective disorder, mood disorders, lithium versus placebo, lithium versus carbamazepam, lithium versus other drugs, and uh, we focused on the prevention of suicidality, which means suicide and deliberate self-harm, in people allocated to lithium or other compounds. And what we found was that even if lithium, the difference was not significant at the study level, when we pulled all the studies together, we found a striking effect of lithium in preventing both suicide and also deliberate self-harm. The second example is many years later when we uh, addressed the issue of antidepressant for major depression. What we wanted to have was not a simple standard meta-analysis A versus B, but we wanted to compare everything versus everything. and That's the so-called network meta-analysis. And collecting data, uh, it was about 27,000 patients, 120 studies and having a clinical, clear bottom line that something was better than other drugs or other drugs were clearly worse than others was was really a good example of the powerful evidence synthesis you can have in this field. As a psychiatrist working um, with these medications, I've definitely used that evidence in in my practice and discussed 
the evidence that you've published with with patients directly, and it's been very helpful to to have that data synthesis. But um, it, this isn't an easy thing to do, is it? This isn't something that you can just take off the shelf and 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 do as a, a start research because the methodology is is very complicated. So, I mean. How is it that you've sort of developed these these techniques that can test such a vast array of, of different interventions and compare them with each other? Yeah, it's, it's a minefield because it's very, very easy to, to make mistakes. It started many years ago when I met uh, Giorgio Salanti, a statistician coming from with a strong um, background in mathematics, pure mathematics. And uh, I talked to her about which was the clinical problem I had. So many antidepressants, what to do, is there anything we can use in terms of evidence synthesis to grasp a, a very um, robust uh, message. So we started developing the methodology. It was a methodology used in other fields of medicine, never in psychiatry. So uh, it was a, a sort of pioneering the field and we did it with, with many trials and errors and in the end I learned the methodology but what I know now is that you need a proper statistician to do this meta-analysis, and also a statistician skilled in network meta-analysis, not a simple statistician. And the second thing is it's very important to be absolutely sure about the results because when you do a network meta-analysis it's a process, three to four years, every natural meta-analysis. You collect the data and the statistician runs all the analysis of the syntaxes. But many times, the first, the pre preliminary results are wrong. because So there's a, it's nice because it's teamwork. You have to have the knowledge, the clinical understanding of the message. And they are play, the statisticians are playing with numbers and what I do is to do it blind. So they don't know the names of the drugs. They know just A, B, C, and drug A, drug B, drug C. So it's completely blind. But when we unblind the results, we need to talk with statisticians and uh, clinicians of different, with different expertise to understand whether it is correct or not. It sounds like you've learned a, a lot about the, uh, the process of developing that, that methodology. What would you say, um, or what, what advice would you give? You, you mentioned that there, there's, there's not always good meta-analysis out there, there is some bad meta-analysis. How do you tell the difference? I think all clinicians to, should be able to understand the difference. And there are a few key issues. One is, first of all, to look at the evidence, the primary evidence, primary studies, which means table one. The table one of the paper should report all the studies included, and it's a very useful starting point to understand whether that meta-analysis really answers the question that they uh, report at the beginning of the paper. The second thing is how they report the data, because as long as the data in the first plots are reported in a transparent way, which means replicable, we can you can you have the figures, the numbers, the denominators, and you can redo the analysis. This is a good proxy that they did in a transparent way and it's in a reliable way. The other thing is the journal. So um, a good journal uh, tends to publish uh, very good stuff, but it is not the case. So it's not necessarily the case. It's not always the case. No. So really what you're doing is, is 
um, providing clinicians with a series of very helpful studies that can synthesize a lot of data and sort of give give clinicians an answer use this antidepressant medication use this dose of antipsychotic for instance mm-hmm. so that's really the building blocks of evidence-based medicine and I was just wondering what you think of, of evidence-based medicine or evidence-based practice that's occurring in psychiatry what, what do you think of it do you think it's, it's happening do you think psychiatrists are operating within the evidence base well, I, I think this is the best framework we have, even though it's not ideally the optimal situation, but evidence-based practice, evidence-based medicine is uh, what I'd like to have as a patient, and I want, I'd like my uh, psychiatrist or my physician to use this kind of approach, because it's a combination of the clinical circumstances, the patient values and preferences, and the best available evidence, which means not only the most robust evidence, but also the most up-to-date, because the results change over time, might change over time. I think there's a gap in the implementation of uh, evidence-based data into practice. And I think psychiatry is particularly difficult, because we might be, as psychiatrists, we might be a bit ideological, on one hand, there's a lot of debates about more ideological things rather than real clinical problems. And what I'm also worried is, um, is that some people have a too simplistic approach. They tend to simplify too much. So we, I like the idea of having a bottom line message. But at the same time, clinical practice is so complex that you need to have some anchor points and references but the actual decision is between the medic uh, or the mental health professional and the patient. Some of your recent uh, publications have been about uh, doses of antipsychotics and antidepressants. Do you think that that sort of level of detail should be left up to clinical practice and and titrating doses according to the individual patients they see, or, or should this all be regulated through guidelines? I think, well, medicine and psychiatry, uh, the the degree of freedom of clinician has to be preserved, definitely. What we wanted to address is a twofold question. One is, can we give a a sort of general advice about doses in antidepressants, also in terms of comparability between different antidepressants and different doses? On the other hand, it's the never-ending story of the clinical trials using different doses versus placebo, uh, favoring the comparator of the investigational drug. So it was also a work we wanted to do to clarify some issues in terms of regulatory policies. So a bit of both, really. We need to have the clinical expertise, but we need to have the evidence base to back it up. In your understanding of your expert knowledge about the, where the current evidence is for prescribing in, in mental health, uh, where would you say the, the gaps are or where, where do you think we need to understand more at the moment? What we are trying to do, and when I say we, is a group of people, a network of people interested in evidence synthesis and natural meta-analysis, we are trying to summarize all the evidence for uh, pharmacological but also non-pharmacological interventions 
in the main disorders in psychiatry, unipolar depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, PTSD, anxiety, panic disorder. And the idea is then to use this data to build a sort of algorithm because what we can do is to use the natural meta-analysis technique, not only with summary data from primary studies, but also with individual patient data. And if we use the individual patient data, we can build this algorithm stratifying the um, treatment indication according to gender, number of previous episodes, severity of illness, and uh, I don't know, country or whatever it is. And then the, the big plan is to start monitoring real patients, real world settings, monitoring outcome after prescribing treatments according to this algorithm, at, at, at the end of a follow-up period, could be months or years, we can use this data via a learning machine process to implement and feedback the original algorithm. And so the idea is to overcome the dichotomy between randomized data and observational data and try to merge them into a real-world scenario. So starting from randomized evidence, having a treatment indications, then observational data to reinforce, implement, change, which is the original thing. So what you're suggesting there is, is actually quite radical. You're suggesting that we might begin to have evidence about um, what medications a patient should use if, if they're female, if they're uh, middle-aged, if they're depending on what race they are. Um, so all this kind of all this kind of information is going to change clinical practice quite significantly. Well, I think it's what we, as, as doctors, what, what what we see in our clinics almost every day. So people respond differently. People do not respond. So and everybody has different ideas. So if we can collect all this data and look at the data we have already collected that's really informative, the potential. And we have examples in neurology, stroke, uh, cancer, uh, hematology. So using data of previous studies, they found incredibly powerful differences, stratifying treatment according to uh, like the, the degree of uh, carotid stenosis to gender differences, number, uh, age, or different things. I think, yes, in psychiatry we need innovation, we need new treatment, we need to, and academia is, should have this mission, trying to discover new treatment and better treatment for our patients. But at the same time, all the old treatments like lithium or other drugs we know are really effective, we need to understand why they work, but at the same time trying to understand how we can use them better. It sounds really interesting, that, that, that work, and I look forward to hearing uh, more results uh, in the future. But maybe we can end by uh, just some thoughts from you about, uh, well, what you'd like to say to potential junior psychiatrists or medical students who might be interested in a career in academic psychiatry or a career in, in psychiatry. What, what, what advice or, or words of wisdom would you have for them? I would encourage anyone to, to do this kind of career because uh, it's fascinating, it's exciting and it's also very important to find someone, I was lucky to find someone who inspired me and um, taught me a lot of things about which is the, the mission of people 
in academia, they, you have to be a free thinker, so op completely open mind. At the same time, there's a dose of courage and investment in things you, you think are important and not necessarily uh, what the average people say. So to be mm, quite innovative in, in your way of thinking and doing. And this is, from the personal point of view, from a more general point of view, I think we, uh, people who work in the academia and who try to work with the younger generation, we need to fill this gap. So we need to be better example, better models, because there's a lot of bad models and it's difficult to find someone. And it's also a matter of availability time to have the time to spend with the younger generation. As editor of this journal, Evidence-Based Mental Health, what I want is to be able, with a boring thing like evidence-based synthesis and data synthesis, try to show how a rigorous methodology can inspire clinical practice on an everyday basis. And what I'd like to do is engage younger generation with examples. And this is the reason why we started the Google Hangouts, the Twitter chats, New, use the social media to engage young people because we need someone with fresh ideas and with the energy. Andrea, it's been great to speak to you today. Thank you for your time. Thanks, thanks to you. Thank you for tuning in to another uh, podcast with the Oxford University Psychiatry Podcast Series. Goodbye. <laughs>